1 Samuel chapter 4, starting from verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. 
So they took Dagon and put him back in this place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time and for your word. And thank you for this gathering that we are here to hear this word and to be able to understand it, but not to understand it in ways that we master it, but that it would master us. That it would be a word that we would understand through the lens of your son, Jesus, to encourage us and challenge us as we live for you. Even for those who are here who aren't yet Christians, who are not sure if they're followers of Jesus or who are aware that they're not followers of Jesus, we ask, Father, that this word would encourage and challenge them to know what it means to be in relationship with you, to know who you are. We ask, Father, that you'd bless this time. Help us by your Spirit now to understand this word, Holy Spirit, help me to speak clearly from this as I ought. And Lord Jesus, do all of this for your glory and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. Holiness. When you think of the word holiness, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's a a bit of an ambivalent word. Holiness can have such a negative connotation. You hear of people who speak of themselves as being holier than thou. I'm much more holier than you, right? Uh, It's an attitude that basically says, I am a better person because I am more religious, and I want to make you feel guilty about not going to church, not doing religious things. That's on the negative, and yet holiness as a word is something that all Christians are called to. God says, be holy as I am holy, which means that if you've ever actually met a holy person, not someone who says that they are holy, but someone who actually is holy, you can't but help see the difference. It's an attractive difference. C.S. Lewis once remarked to a friend 
that if a quarter, just simply a quarter of the church was genuinely holy as God is holy, then wouldn't we see the conversion of the entire world because of that difference? Well, how do you grow in it? How do you grow in holiness? If that's something that God calls us to do, how do we get there? Well, it begins with how you treat God, and that's how we're, what we're going to see in these chapters, how we treat the holy God. You notice that our passage today, chapter 4, verse 1, begins in a slightly odd way. It begins with this phrase, the word and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Uh, at the end of chapter 3, we read that God was now speaking. Remember, the drought of God's word had been broken. God was now speaking and re- clearly, speaking clearly through Samuel, the prophet and the priest of God. If Israel wanted a word from God, then Samuel was their widely known source. But in these chapters, chapter 4, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 1, Samuel will drop out of the story. God will remain silent in these chapters today, but the silence doesn't mean God is gone. Far from it. We will see God act again and again. So again, in chapter 4, verse 1, we see the Israelites are going out into battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a constant thorn in the side of Israel through this book. Now, here's a quick map to kind of get us oriented as to what's happening. Uh, it kind of shows you briefly what's going to be happening in our chapters. Uh, the arrows uh, on, the, on the map there are the kind of journey of the ark. And you see that kind of blue territory? It's kind of shaded in there. That's where Philistines are, right? Our story kicks off right at the top of that map uh, between what we think is Ebenezer and Aphek, where the Philistines are. The problem is described for us very briefly in verse 2. Israel were losing in battle against them. All right, fine, that's what happened. Things like that happened. So what should they do? Have a look at verse 3. The elders of Israel get together and they start to wonder out loud, why aren't we winning? Why is God allowing us to be defeated? Now, what should they do? They come up with the dumbest idea imaginable. Treat God like a lucky charm. Read it with me again from chapter 4, verse 3. And when the people, of, uh, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said... Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Okay, to get the foolishness of this, first you've got to understand, what is the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark is the box. It's the box that housed the two tablets with the Ten Commandments given to Moses, On the lid were two angels, cherubim, with their wings facing each other and touching, and the lid was called the mercy seat. And so together with the box, it represented the place where God sat, where His presence dwelled. The ark represents God's presence with His people. So you can see the foolishness of the elders here in 1 Samuel. The situation is that they were losing a battle, so instead of seeking God's help through Samuel... 
they decide to bring the ark down from Shiloh and then bring it with them into the battlefield. Now, notice how it's worded there at the end of verse 3. It's not that they want God's presence with them. It's that they think the ark, it, has the power to save them. Can you see how they're treating God and treating the ark like some sort of lucky charm? So, in verse 4, the ark is accompanied by the, comes out and is accompanied by the chief priest's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh-oh. Remember, they were going to die together on the same day. You would have thought hearing that, you know, kind of like how some businesses and they have their CEOs travel on separate planes so that if the plane goes down and they're all on the, then the business, anyway. Um, you know, the, you, this is bad news already. When the ark arrives in Ebenezer, all of Israel let out a ripping great cry. Yes, the ark is with us. And it's so loud that fear strikes the Philistines' hearts. They know now that God is among them. They know this same God was responsible for striking down the Egyptians and the, great, the greatest and the mightiest nation of that time. But they galvanize themselves. They're ready for the, for the battle. And they say, take courage and be men. Now, if you don't know any better, at this point... In the story, you'd be expecting the battle to kind of swing in Israel's favor, right? They have the ark, they are encouraged, the Philistines are shaking in their sandals. The momentum is with Israel. So then you read the aftermath of the battle in a very two very brief verses, verses 10 and 11, and our expectations are reversed. The Philistines come away with the clear victory. 30,000 Israelites lose their lives. Hophni and Phinehas lose their lives, and the ark is lost, captured by the Philistines. Messenger runs back from the battlefield, breaks the news at Shiloh, everyone is devastated. As soon as Eli hears his sons are dead and the ark is captured, he falls over backwards and he snaps his neck. God has not spoken, but his words have come true. The prophecy from last week has come true. And then we finish chapter 4 with this very sad side story. Phineas' wife goes into labor when she hears that the ark has been captured and her husband is dead. She gives birth to a baby boy, and just before she dies from the trauma of the childbirth, she names the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod means where is the glory? Literally, the glory has gone into exile. Do you remember that? Centuries later, there would be a generation in exile who are reading this story, hearing this story, and they're hearing that the glory went into exile, and they're thinking, yeah, I know what that's like. I have experienced it. Israel has badly mistreated God's presence here. They've, they did not treat God as though they were in relationship with him, where God was their king and they served him. They were treating him like a lucky charm, pulling him out when they needed him, thinking that he would protect his people simply by being dragged into battle with them. See, if you're asking the question, whose side is God on, you're asking the wrong question. The better question to ask is, are you on God's side? Because that's what the Philistines are about to find out in point two as we get to chapters five and six. We, now, we heard half of read before, and if you had read it during the week, and uh, if you're not 
connected to us in our socials, on our Facebook group or in our WhatsApp chat groups, uh, each week uh, I'm sending out early in the week a couple of questions that will help us as we're reading the chapters along, pre-reading the chapters before Sunday. But if you did get to read it during the week, you may have picked up that this is actually a really bit of, bit of a funny story. It's, it's, there's a bit of a giggle here, and it's actually okay to laugh. So check back on the map with me, okay? So here the ark is. The ark was lost there between Aphek and Ebenezer, and now it's been brought down clearly into Philistine territory uh, to the city of Ashdod, right? So the Philistines then set up the ark in the house of Dagon, or Dagon, right? The Philistines' supreme god, the god of vegetation and fertility. Right? Putting the ark beside him was a triumphant way of showing everyone who won the battle, Dagon standing, the ark at his feet. Now, this is where the comedy begins. The next day, some temple workers walk in and they do a double take. Because they're lying on the floor is something they've never seen before. Their statue of Dagon that has probably stood there for decades, if not centuries, has now somehow defied physics, and laid down face down in front of the ark, bowing down like this, face to the floor, kind of like an act of worship. So what do they do? Look at each other, and they go, you know, if we pick him up before anyone notices, maybe we don't need to tell anyone what happened here. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. So they pick him up, and they put him back in place. Now think about that for a second. Their almighty God of fertility, but he cannot speak and he cannot move. And somehow he's lying down on the floor. And then this all-powerful deity who has supposedly defeated Yahweh needs help to get back up again. Pro tip, if your God needs you to pick him up and move him around and clean him up, he's probably not a God. But then the next day something worse happens. Not only is the statue of Dagon once again face down before the Ark of the Lord, but his head and his hands have been cut off. That is truly embarrassing. What kind of puny God can't take care of his own statue? Oh, very interestingly, Dagon, this tall statue, this Philistine, loses his head. This is not the last time in the story of 1 Samuel that a Philistine will lose his head. Or a tall person, for that matter. Well, then we read in chapter 5, verse 6, that the hand of God was heavy on them, heavy in judgment as he terrifies and afflicts them with tumors. So the Philistines quickly put two and two together. They work out all these things that are happening and has started to happen when the ark came among them. So they decide to send the box onto Gath, right? Send it off to another city. But at Gath, the same thing happens. Break, tumors break out everywhere, and the people get into a panic. And so then the Philistine, they, they send it on to another Philistine town, Ekron. It's like they're playing a game of hot potato. The ark is just too hot to handle. You, you take it. No, no, you take it. No, no, you take it. And again, tumors break out, and a great panic is breaking out in the town. So what do they decide to do? So now we're in chapter 6, and we read that the ark has been with the Philistines for seven months, and that's a long time. The Philistines grab their priests and the diviners, all their smart guys, and they work out that this really must be the work of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Send it back. Send it back. But you've got to send it back with a guilt offering, a, a kind of way of saying, 
sorry we took your ark. Here's a little gift to make it up for it. Right? And so what do they do with the what do they send as a guilt offering? So have a look at chapter 6, verse 4. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Five golden tumors. Which of the Philistine leaders sat down and modeled for that? Right. In any event, they gather up all the gold in the ark and they place it on a cart. And now very interestingly in verse 7, we, we're told that they decide to hook up to the cart two milking cows, right? two female cows who have, been, who have just given birth, who are full of milk, and their calves are taken away and tucked away. What do you think a mother would do when she's separated from her baby? Go find her baby. But this is quite a smart test from the Philistines. If the cows just take the ark and the cart and they head straight to Beth Shemesh, right, then they will know that it was truly Yahweh who was doing all of this. There was no coincidence. And then what happens? They set it all up, the cows onto the cart, the ark on the cart, the tumors on the cart, the five mice on the cart. They let it go and the cows walk straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh in, in, in Israel. Israelites see it uh, returning. They shout, for uh, they shout out in glory. Uh, and it must have been a sight to see the mice and the tumors. What is this? It could be a tumor. It's not a tumor. You know. If you didn't laugh at that, you're too young. Right? Now, in chapter 4, the glory of the Lord left Israel. But here in chapter 6, the glory returns to Israel. And it is clearly by the hand of God. This is meant to be a funny story. But you notice that funny stories in humor often, not always, but often has a double edge. What makes us laugh often, but not always, has a side that might slice us in return. So the humor of this chapter has a double edge. Remember, the book of 1 Samuel is mostly focused on the rise and the fall of the first king of Israel, Saul, and then the rise of David, their second king. And remember that it was Israel that wanted a king. But look at the reason why they wanted a king. So in your Bibles there, turn with me to chapter 8. We're going to dip into that uh, today. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You see what they wanted there? They want a king to judge us like all the nations. We want what everyone else has around us. Someone to lead us in battle. Someone who will defend against our enemies. Someone who would administer justice in the land. But after reading chapters 4 to 6, isn't that what God is doing? Israel didn't ask God to lead them in battle, but when the ark was in Philistine territory, he certainly smashed his enemies. And then he let the ark back, he led the ark back to the land of Israel. God is everything they need in a king already. Which is why, in, which is why God says that it wasn't Samuel that they were rejecting. Have a look at uh, chapter 8 again, verse 6. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, Israel might have had a good side-splitting laugh at the way the Philistines were brought down so easily by their God, but the double edge comes back to slice them. The God who did this was their capable and defender and king. They didn't need a human king in Israel. Yahweh was more than capable of doing the job. His holiness would ensure the defeat of his enemies, the protection of his people, and the keeping of his promises. Now, this sobering double edge is then brought home to us in, a very, in our final small point at the end. Israel mistreated God's presence at the beginning of the story, but at the end of the story, we see that they haven't learnt their lesson. And so from verse 13 onwards, the ark returns. They are really happy about it. They break down the ark, the cart, uh, the cart, not the ark. They break down the cart. They create a makeshift altar. They burn the cows on as an offering to God. But then... Look at verse 19, and we get this very sad end to the story. Verse 19. And he, that is God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? The men are struck down, not because they glanced at the ark. When when it was returning, everyone saw it. This was more than just glancing. Their curiosity got the better of them. The ark, remember, was a symbol of God's presence, and they failed to treat God's presence as holy. Every time God is present in the Bible and people are interacting with him, they have to treat him with reverence. When Moses meets God at the burning bush, he is told, take off your sandals for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Right? When Israel are at Mount Sinai and God is present on top of the mountain, they are told, do not come near the mountain and do not touch it lest you die. When God comes into the tabernacle to dwell in, an, uh, in that tent among, uh, among his people, there are boundaries upon boundaries to make sure that ordinary people couldn't cross to their death. And so when the men cry out in verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is nobody. Why? Because God is holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? I'm going to get a bit technical here for a second, so please stick with me for the next three minutes as I explain this. Okay? And to explain holiness, I need to pick up a scene in the Bible much later. Uh, there's a prophet much later after, this, after 1 Samuel by the name of Isaiah. And one day while Isaiah is praying, he is transported into the throne room of God. And there he sees and hears angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. When the Bible repeats words or ideas like this, it does so to amplify them. So when uh, it's like saying God is the most holy, the highest holy, holy to the uttermost. 
His holiness is beyond comparison because his holiness doesn't come from some outside source. It doesn't flow to God. God's holiness is intrinsic to his very nature. His holiness is the very essence of who God is. To be holy means to be set apart. So God is the most set apart being. But set apart from what? I've got a, in my house, I have a special scoop for coffee, right? That is only used for coffee beans in my house. This spoon, this scoop is separated from all other spoons and scoops in the house. It is holy to me, right? What is God separated from? The answer is that God is unique, different, and distinct from everything that exists. God is so utterly unique, so utterly distinct. He is completely and thoroughly good. He has no blemishes in his head, in his heart, or his hands. His thoughts are always good. His actions are always good. His purposes are always good. We may not fully appreciate that, especially in our pain and suffering, but that's because we are not holy like God is. We are limited and imperfect. But God's perfections have no limits. He is infinitely beautiful. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely wise and infinitely pure. He is holy, holy, holy. When the prophet Isaiah heard this and saw the holy, holy God, holy, holy, holy God, he immediately knew that he was in trouble. How could he, an imperfect, unclean, sin-stained man, stand before such a holy God? And that's what Israel forgot. Seventy men forgot this to their death. They mistreated God's holiness. Can you see how actually God's holiness has been on display through this entire story? Israel mistreated God's presence at the start of the story and paid for the price by losing the ark. The Philistines had no idea about his holiness and found out that Yahweh is holier than Dagon and his holiness weighed heavily on the Philistines. And at the end here, Israel completely mismanages God's holiness. And that's the point of these chapters. That's what these chapters are saying together. God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And he will not be treated lightly by his people or by anyone else. When the Israelites cry out at the end, who can stand before our holy God? What a great question. Who could stand? We might have some big issues in life. Broken friendships or relationships, a frustrating work situation. Some of us may have pretty hard and severe physical and mental challenges. But surely, no matter what we may be going through, the biggest underlying problem in our lives is that God is holy, righteous, and just, and we are not. We are not by nature creatures that are holy. Apart from any help, if we found ourselves in the presence of God, we would cry out with Isaiah, woe is me. I am better off dead. 
and I am better off damned than to be in the presence of such holiness. Because who could stand before such a holy and righteous God? Who? Only those who are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. Hear from Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see it there in the vision from John. A great multitude, countless in number, representing a diversity that Hollywood is trying so hard to capture. People from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, where are they? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And how is that possible? Because they are clothed in white robes, robes made white by the blood of Jesus. These people represent all who have trusted Jesus. Anyone who has rested all of their hopes for forgiveness and reconciliation with God in Jesus' death alone. Who can stand before the holy God? Christians can. Not because they are holier than other people. Not because they have earned it by their works or their religiosity. They stand because of the robes that have been gifted to them, that have been placed on them simply by trusting Jesus and living thankfully in response. Are you wearing the robes? Are you someone who is trusted and following Jesus? If you're not a Christian or not a follower of Jesus, or you're not sure if you are, then the, the chapters, the passage we've looked at, 1 Samuel 4, 1 to 7, 1, it's got bad news for you. The bad news is that God is holy and you have mistreated and mistaken it. That means that you have not treated God as God, which is no small thing. If you offend me, well, that's a small thing. I am an imperfect person like you. But to offend the purest, the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most unique and wonderful being is an offense of infinite horror. The truth, this is a truth that goes beyond how we feel about it, how you feel about it. This is what the Bible says. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I think we all know that this is true. We all feel guilt and shame. It's the prick of our conscience that we have, haven't just done something presently wrong, but something that we will be held accountable for in the future. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you cannot stand before the holy God. You've got a couple of options now. The first option is panic, Right? like the Philistines did when the ark was in their presence. That's one option. Probably not the best one, not a good idea. But might be a good idea to follow through like the Philistines did. Their panic led them to act. And the invitation I want to give you is to act on the good news. 
the good news that God has made a way to stand before him. Uh, To rework a quote from John Piper, God in his wisdom has made a way for his love to deliver us from the wrath of his holiness without compromising his justice. Now just let that sink in for a moment. What is this way? That way is in sending his son, Jesus, to be a substitute in our place. Instead of you taking the full brunt of God's wrath and sin, Jesus takes it for you. This grace is designed not only to forgive you, but to reconcile you to God. Now, it takes a few steps. You need to first admit that you're a sinner, unable to stand before God and in need of His help. Second, you need to trust that Jesus has come to be your substitute. Trust that Jesus is able to make you stand before God. Third, you need to repent by turning away from living for your sins and turning to following Jesus as Savior and King and Lord. And give thanks to Him for His saving work. Live with Him as your King day by day. And then you've got to join church because it's not a solo marathon. It's a group effort. We read the Bible together so we can learn and grow in understanding these things and encouraging each other to be spurred on. So let me invite you to take that step and speak with me or with your friend who brought you today if you're interested. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone who says they are a Christian, what should we take away from this passage? i got two things, two things. The first big thing. first big thing we need to ask ourselves is if we are falling into the trap of treating God lightly, if we are falling into the trap of treating God like a lucky charm, Israel used God as a means to an end, but God will not be treated like that. So how do we fall into the same error? Let me ask you some questions. Let's diagnose our own hearts for a moment. Do we live as functional atheists? You say you believe in God, but do you actually live as a functional atheist? You live as though he isn't, if God, that God isn't really there. You go about your own business, doing your own things your own way. And when you do pray, it's mostly when you need something. Your prayers are not seeking wisdom and guidance from God's Word and then opening it up and reading it. Your prayers are mostly just asking God for what you want. Do you find yourself giving thanks to God when things are going well, but then asking, why God, why? when things are not going well? Are you a Christian so that you can get to heaven or so that you can avoid hell? Friends, what is the end goal of the gospel? What is the primary goal, the outcome that the gospel achieves? Is it our salvation? No, that is a gift of the gospel. Is it our forgiveness? No, that is also a gift of the gospel. What is the primary end goal of the gospel? To be reconciled with God? Yes, now we're on the right track. The end goal of the gospel is God himself. 
He is not a means to an end. He is the end. This is how the Apostle Peter put it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, if you don't want to treat God as a lucky charm, then this is the starting place. See that God is the end goal of the gospel, to be reconciled to him so that you can enjoy him for who he is, not for what he can do for you. To see all the good gifts of the gospel as pointing you to enjoy the giver, to enjoy him, to delight in him. How do you do that? How do you delight in him, to enjoy him in this way? I think of it this way. The closer you are to that which you hold supreme, the more delight you receive. The closer you are to that which you hold supreme, the more delight you receive. Uh, Here's an example. In the news recently, like almost every other story, has been about Taylor Swift and her concerts in Australia. I bet you didn't know that I was going there. Right? Wait a minute. In our church, I've learned that there's probably no bigger fan of Taylor Swift than Pastor Richard's <laughs> wife, Maggie. Richard is also a big fan, and they were away last weekend because, of course, they were at the Taylor Swift concert on Friday night. For Richard and Maggie, Taylor Swift is an icon, not just a great entertainer, but someone who's impacted them personally through her music. And so when Richard and Maggie sit down to listen to a Taylor Swift song, well, it brings them joy. But then look at these big smiles on their faces as they brave the rain to go see Taylor Swift in concert live. They had great seats really close to the stage with a great view of the concert stage. Listening to her music is great, Being closer to Taylor Swift brought them even more joy. Now imagine, imagine if they were, they had some pretty good seats. You got some pretty good seats. But imagine if they were able to get VIP front row seats. Their joy, what would would happen to their joy? Well, it would increase exponentially, wouldn't it? Of course it would. But now imagine that Taylor Swift in the middle of a concert, looks at Maggie and then pulls her up onto stage and throws her arm around Maggie and sings all too well the 10-minute version, Taylor's version from the vault. Maggie's head would explode for joy. The closer you get to that which you hold supreme, the greater our joy. Friends, 70 Israelites died because they treated God's holiness too lightly and they got too close to the ark. And that was a fearful moment for Israel. But look at what Jesus' death accomplishes for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we don't just have access to the throne, we have confident access. Later this year, we're going to be walking through the book of Hebrews very slowly, and we're going to do that because I want all of us to capture this deep down in our hearts, how great 
and supreme and wonderful and beautiful and pure and sublime is the person and work of Jesus. To do so so that we can behold him, enjoy him, and desire to draw closer and closer to him for our joy. If you don't want to treat God as a lucky charm, then it begins here. It begins with meditating on the supremacy of Jesus, of prayerfully asking God to take all that you know in your head, to magnify that and expand that and then sink that deep into your heart. Okay, so that's the first big application. Do we treat God as a lucky charm? And how do we go about doing that? How are we going about not doing that? The second application point is this. Does the holiness of God lead the way that we relate to God? Do we treat God with reverence? Do we treat him with reverence? And how do we go about doing that? The answer is that God's holiness needs to lead our lives. And we do that simply by being holy as he is holy. He's called us in the Bible, be holy as I am holy. Now, being holy sounds so righteous. It sounds so ick, right? Sounds like I'm telling everyone that I'm better than you. Is there a better way of thinking about it? A better way of getting our heads around that idea? Well, let me link this idea of being holy back to my previous point. And to do that, we've got to go back to thinking about Maggie and Taylor Swift again. So, remember I said earlier that the closer we get to that which we hold supreme, the more joy we receive. It's also true that the more we look like that which we hold supreme, the more joy it brings to us. Okay, so Maggie's head re-implode, like it hasn't exploded yet, but her head is exploding for joy. Now imagine that Taylor Swift is on stage with her and then she takes her guitar and then she hands it to Maggie and then she says, your turn. I've heard you're pretty good. And then Taylor Swift sits down next to Richard and Richard's like, his head's about to explode. (laughs) And then Maggie grabs the guitar and she starts playing one of Taylor's songs and the crowd are and they start singing along with her. And when she's done, there's a massive round of applause and she comes off stage and people are saying, you looked and played and sounded exactly like Taylor. And then Richard's just so proud he's married to her. What do you think has now happened to Maggie's joy levels? Her head was exploding with joy, but now she's died and gone to heaven, right? And why is that? Because the more we look like that which we consider supreme, the more joy it brings to us. When the Bible says, when God says, be holy as I am holy, he's actually inviting us into a journey that brings us joy. And it will bring us joy if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is supreme. And when we do that, we will reverence God in our lives. Is that what you want? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks so much for this day, so much for this word that you've given us. We pray that it's message of your holiness and how you will not be treated lightly by your people or anyone else. We pray that that warning, that message will be challenging to us. We thank you that in Christ we are given encouragement. We are not just given warning. 
We thank you that, in, that Jesus is so wonderfully beautiful and supreme. Please magnify him in our heads and in our hearts, that our joy would be to grow in Christ-likeness, to be like our Savior, closer to him, and as our joy then would then increase and overflow. Do this great work in our lives and help us to see that in each other and to encourage that in each other. We ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.